I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Uh, thank you for those of you who have been praying already this morning. Uh, it's one of my biggest frustrations in life not to be able to sing with you as we sing together, uh, but it was great to hear you sing in praise and celebration to the Lord. And I did sneak in some songs uh, in there along the way as well. Let's come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the end of the chapter. I plan on covering a good bit of uh, many verses here this morning. Uh, the last three weeks, we have benefited from Paul's counsel to the Corinthians regarding marriage. The Corinthians asked Paul a series of questions about marriage, and Paul's counsel at a fundamental level was that they should remain where they were and serve God. Last week, you might remember, if you were here, uh, that Paul used two different illustrations to describe their marital status and their need to stay faithful in their marriage situations. He used their religious status and their relationship to Judaism, and he, he used their economic or social status to make the, the point that believers should be willing to uh, remain faithful and continue in their marriages for the honor and glory of God. Of course, uh, this does not mean that God is, is against, in the workplace, against promotions or job changes. And in marriage, it, this text does not mean that we should just kind of gut out a very abusive relationship or something like that. That's not what the text is saying. But what it is saying is that in marriages where you're married to a believer or an unbeliever, um, that we should have a commitment to remain faithful to our spouses. This week, as we start into a section, uh, we start into a new section, Paul answers questions related to singleness. Remember chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul says, now concerning, and then for 24 verses, he deals with questions about marriage. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five, he gives another marker to tell us he's moving on to a separate but related topic. In 7.25, he says, now concerning, he uses the same exact words to say that he's going to be addressing, be addressing the betrothed or the engaged. It seems that the Corinthian church had written a letter to the Apostle Paul, and in it, they had questions related to singleness. In particular, there's one question that Paul takes a great deal of time answering in this text, and the question that the Corinthians posed to Paul was what about engaged couples or betrothed couples? Should engaged or betrothed couples get married? It seems that there was some controversy about this in Corinth, and so Paul's going to answer this. As I said before, this is a big passage, and it's a sensitive subject. I just want to explain to you at the very beginning, I've worked really hard this week to be as clear as I can. I'm praying for this. In fact, this is so important to me. This topic on singleness is so important. I ran this sermon by several groups of people just to get an idea of how my explanation of what Paul says here strikes them, okay? So, have you ever heard the phrase before, don't shoot the messenger? Okay, that's like a, a wartime analogy. I looked it up this week. <laughs> don't shoot the messenger basically means don't shoot the one delivering the message to you. Okay, and as long as what I am saying 
adheres to the text of Scripture, I would say I proudly will stand behind it and for it. If you've got any questions, any questions, any comments, any thoughts, which I'm sure you will, I'd encourage you this week to come to me. I'd love to talk with you and discuss this and see how this sermon strikes you. But Paul is going to deal with singleness here, especially those in engaged relationships. He starts by giving several reasons why single people in Corinth should consider remaining single. And then he gives a few allowances for people to get married near the end of the text. So very simple outline, two points this morning. Reasons for remaining single, that's number one. And allowances for getting married, that's number two. Okay, so I want to look at verses 25 through 35 and see that Paul gives us three reasons why single people in Corinth should remain single. The first reason is found in verses 25 through 28, where Paul basically says, remain single because of the present crisis that is impacting the city of Corinth. Look in your Bible, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you of that. Paul's first reason for singleness here is marked out in the paragraph with a device called an inclusio. An inclusio is simply a bracket that writers of scripture will use sometimes to, to hold a whole paragraph together. At the beginning of this passage in verse uh, 25 or 26, Paul talks about a present crisis. You see that in your Bible? And then at the end of the passage, in verse 28, he talks about worldly troubles. I want to suggest that a present crisis or worldly troubles, that'd be two ways of Paul saying the same thing, or just about the same point. And it's two ways of emphasizing Paul's main point in this, te- in this text. And Paul's main point, stated clearly, is that engaged believers in Corinth should remain single because of a crisis that had hit the city or the church. Now, to better understand verses 25 through 28, I want to ask three questions about this passage. Uh, The first question is, who are the betrothed? You see in your Bible in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. So first question, who are the betrothed? There are two main views or ideas that this could be in reference to. Some people believe that this word betrothed means all single women in Corinth. Okay, this is the, almost the universal opinion of all the early interpreters of Scripture, the church fathers. They all thought that betrothed meant all single women. Even some modern translations translate it that way to help the reader understand it. And they do so primarily because the word betrothed in the original has a feminine ending. Okay, so Paul is talking about some sort of woman here And it's apparent from the text that the woman that he's addressing is not married yet. Okay, so some people say um, it's all single women. I think there are some problems for this view, uh, especially the word itself. The word betrothed means more than all single women or any single women. The the word seems to 
to uh, apply more than that. And so the other way we can take this and the way that I think is best to see it is that the betrothed refers to all engaged women. Engaged women. Perhaps some uh, of the Corinthian believers were being pressured, some engaged Corinthian believers were being pressured to remain single by other believers in Corinth. Thus, the question comes from the Corinthian church, what about engaged couples should they get married at this point? So should engaged couples get married in light of what is going on in Corinth? And so Paul's first or preliminary answer to this is that Jesus did not issue a command uh, in his writings or in his ministry about engaged couples in the midst of a crisis whether or not they should get married. You remember several times in the text, Paul will go back and forth and say, you know what, the Lord commanded this, or he'll say, I've got no commandment from the Lord. When Paul says in this text, I've got no commandment from the Lord, that doesn't mean that he's going to go off on his own and give us his opinion or perspective outside of what Jesus would have said or done. What he's simply saying in verse 25 is that Jesus didn't address this subject, but now I, one who's been counted trustworthy by God as an apostle, will tell you what or the way to think about the subject. Okay, so that's verse 25. Paul gives his apostolic inspired opinion about things here. Um, That leads us to the second question. I like to ask to just help you understand these verses because some of these verses are hard. What is the present distress? What is the present distress? It seems to be that there were some difficult circumstances in Corinth. Can we figure out what was going on in order to better understand this text? I just want to give you a few opinions, a few thoughts here, and we won't take a lot of time on these, but there really, as I see it, three main possibilities as to what this crisis was that was going on in Corinth. First of all, some people suggest it was a famine. There's some sort of famine going on. There's one really well-known New Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Winter who's done a lot of work on this. He's written all kinds of articles on it. And he suggests that he has found proof that there was a series of famines in the province around Corinth within just a few years of the time that Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul writes in 51 AD. So Bruce Winter says, I can prove that there were famines going on within three or four years of the time that Paul writes this. So maybe the distress is a famine. Now, I actually don't like that as much because later on, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, one of the things that Paul says to the church of Corinth is he says, I want you to give out of your abundance to some famine-stricken people in Jerusalem. Okay, so the question I would have would be, why would Paul the Apostle demand that famine-stricken people over here in Corinth would give money and support to famine-stricken people in Jerusalem? As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes the Corinthians this way. If you remember back a few weeks ago, months ago, however long it was, Paul says, some of, he says, but you are rich, remember that, but you are full. So he's describing the Corinthian church, at least many of them, as having an abundance of wealth and food. So I don't like that view. So 
Um, Martin Luther years ago suggested that the, the crisis in Corinth, number two, the crisis in Corinth was not a famine, but it was persecution. That there was some level of great persecution striking the church at Corinth at this time. So Paul calls it uh, worldly troubles or a present crisis. And I'll, I'll say, I think the word, the word that's used here for crisis is elastic enough to include persecution. So it may be that they were enduring some level of persecution. Or it could be that Paul is describing here something that the Corinthians would know, but something like a great physical or economic distress that had come down on the, poor, uh, the church of Corinth. Okay, without ever being too confident of what the present distress is, I think this might be the best idea here. It appears much more likely to me that the small Corinthian house churches were being devastated with physical sickness, weakness, and death. Some of this epidemic may have even come upon them, some of them for abusing the Lord's table. You remember 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you are sleeping and some of you are sick because of the way you're celebrating the Lord's table. But regardless of whatever this crisis might be. Paul counsels young men and young women not to get married because of the great physical or economic distress that it hit the church. In other words, the present crisis did not make it a very, it did not make it a great time to start a family. Like the old commentator Leon Morris in what he said about this text, Leon Morris said, when When high seas are raging, it is no time for changing ships. His point is, this just isn't a good time for engaged people to get married in Corinth because of of this crisis and these afflictions that you're facing there in Corinth. As we think about applying this passage to our church, I would just say I think that verses 25 through 28 are quite difficult for us to apply today to the church of God in America. Primarily because believers do not endure much persecution or affliction for the cause of Christ, and we're not in the midst of a great financial drought or economic pressure, some sort of disease that is impacting our country. Our nice conditions make this text almost impossible to apply directly to the church of God today. Yet that's okay, right? Because we are not driven primarily by what does the text mean to me as much as what does the text mean. I mean, these are words from God. And we must understand the text of Scripture even if we cannot find an immediate application for every verse or phrase that we find in the text. Now, now having said that, I'll say that I think verses 25 through 28 will mean much more to believers when they are in the midst of difficulty or trial or persecution. These verses should be considered, I believe, by anyone who is going into mission work, who is considering a very dangerous calling. Okay, and so as we consider going to a place where we might give our life for the cause of Jesus Christ, I think these verses would be a good consideration for any single person uh, considering that call. I mean, 
Yes, you are willing to go there and to, to put your neck on the line for Jesus Christ. But if you get married, you need to understand that you'll also be asking your spouse to do the same thing. And you got to be okay with that if you get married. Or in some cases, even if God blesses in this way, you, you might not only be putting the neck of your spouse on the line, you might be putting the neck of your children on the line as well. And so in situations where we are enduring persecution or suffering, perhaps these verses will mean more to us. And so Paul is laying out these different things. We're answering questions. That leads me to answer one more question. That's verse 27. I found many people misunderstanding verse 27. Matter of fact, this is so hard for me to remember. I write a note to myself in the margin of the text to remind myself of what's going on. Paul asks two questions in verse 27, and here's the key. They're both intended for engaged couples. The context is important. These questions are for engaged couples. And so the first question, what what he's basically asking these engaged couples in Corinth is, how serious is your commitment to your future spouse? Or how strong is the engagement? And so he asks, are you under strong obligation? In verse 27, he's asking, how strong is your commitment to your fiance? If strong, then he says, you can go through the marriage. If you're compelled to get married, you still have that option. You can get married in Corinth. And then the second question, the end of verse 27, are you free from an obligation? Like he's saying, are you free from an obligation to the young woman? If it's not a strong betrothal commitment, then you, you do not get married. So in my Bible, in the margin, I put these questions are about engagement in the midst of crisis. So in verse 27, that's the point he's making. And so this first part, I think he says, Paul says, you know what, you need to remain single because of the present crisis that is afflicting the church. He then moves from that culturally sensitive reason to two other reasons that are eternal. And there are two other strong considerations that we need to make about singleness. He says, number two, remain single because of the shortness of time. So I take verses 29 through 31. Look in your Bible at verse 29. Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Because the present form of the world is passing away. I mean, you thought we were through the hard passage, right? And then you read through this passage. So what is Paul trying to do in this text? I think simply stated, Paul is trying to tell these engaged couples, uh, you need to put a priority on your relationship with the Lord. And you should consider remaining single because of the shortness of time in which there is to serve Jesus Christ before he returns. One of the most important things I can do for you if, you, if you have a notes here, I've got a gray shaded box. And I just want to take a moment to give you two important clarifications. This is going to take like two or three minutes, but it's going to be worth it for you to understand this passage. Then it will all open up. I want to suggest that two phrases, as the ESV translates it here, should be reworded. The very first one are the first words of verse 29. So, uh, you look in your Bible and, and it says, this is what I mean, brothers. 
I want to suggest that this passage, Paul is not giving further explanation of what the crisis is, but he's moving on to a different reason. Maybe related reason, but a different reason. And that you should translate it as the translators did. Turn over to chapter 15. Turn over in your Bible to chapter 15 and verse 50, and I'll read the same exact phrase, but it's translated differently in, in chapter 15, verse 58. Same words translated differently. Look at chapter 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. What I would suggest is, you, if you got an ESV, is that you would take that translation and you would bring it back to 1 Corinthians 7 and use it in verse 29 to start the passage. Paul's not saying, I see this present crisis and let me explain more about it. No, he's done with that reason. And now he's moving on to a different reason. And the word in verse 29, the two words, or the three words, from now on, I would encourage you to do the same, draw a little line through them and write the word therefore. Because Paul is moving on to uh, another subject or reason why single engaged couples in Corinth should consider remaining single as their best option. Okay, having done that, we can get to the, the main point. Paul's main intention after those statements is that time has been compressed for believers, which results in married mourners, rejoicers, retailers, and owners behaving much differently because the world in its present form is passing away. In other words, what Paul is saying is because the world is passing away, we don't have very long to serve Jesus Christ. Paul believed, I believe, that Christ could return at any moment. And so one of the considerations that every single person should consider before they get married is, in light of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps I should think about remaining single. In other words, the end of the world demands a radical new standing toward the world, and believers must avoid preoccupation with earthly concerns. Paul's not telling single people, you absolutely can't get married. And he's not telling married men and women to abandon their obligations with all these questions in this passage. We can carry on life as normal. Rather, he is, he is imploring Christians to keep the right perspective on life. I mean, since Christ could come back at any moment, and since the end of the world could happen, believers must diligently serve Jesus above all other pursuits and people. So I love that song we sang today. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, regardless of your marital status, Jesus should be enough for us. And we should pursue him above every other relationship. This is the point that he's making. Paul might have learned this idea from Jesus. I think of what Jesus said in Luke 14, 24. This was the subject of the first sermon I ever preached. I can't say that I actually got it right. <laughs> I look back on it. But in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
That's a perplexing point, but I think that Jesus's point is this. Your love for God should be so strong, should be so energized, that it makes all other loves in your life almost look like hate. Paul, in another text, makes a point very similar to this as well. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 13 for a minute. I want you to be struck with one of these reasons why single people should consider remaining single. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about the shortness of time. Verse 11, he says this, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is saying in Romans 13 that we we don't have much time left. The end of the world could come at any moment. So we must diligently and urgently, we use those words, diligently and urgently serve Jesus Christ. And so as we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think one of the reasons Paul would, 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 would put before a single person as to why they might remain single is because the present form of the, the world is passing away. Time is short. So again, don't shoot the messenger. They don't shoot the messenger. This is from Paul the Apostle. It seems to me that Paul himself preferred singleness in his own life, and one of the reasons he did so was not on any moral ground, like it was better or superior, but on an eschatological ground. Eschatological means end times. He says you really should think about remaining single because the end of the world is upon us. The Lord could come back at any moment. And so let me ask you just a few questions of application this morning, regardless of your marital status. Men and women, do you have great zeal for the return of Christ? Is the coming of Christ the object of your gaze and longing? Or as two commentators asked in this passage, I liked how they asked the question, they say, uh, has your future squashed your present? Has your future with Jesus squashed your present? Zeal for the return of the Lord will change the nature and quality of our life. I mean, to get even more specific for us today, I mean, how often this past week did you think about the coming end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ. I knew the sermon was coming. So I tried to schedule moments where I could just like stop and think about what it'll be like to see Jesus. The true of you, maybe this week you should schedule some moments. Put it in your calendar to think about the fact that you want the end of the world could come at any moment and I'll see Jesus forevermore. That would greatly change the way many of us live our lives. 
And so Paul says, you should consider remaining single because of the shortness of time. He then goes to verses 32 through 35. There's a third reason. You should remain single because of the possibility of divided loyalties. That's how I would describe verses 32 through 35. Remain single because of the possibility of divided loyalties. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. In verses 32 through 34, Paul sets up this contrast between married men and unmarried men and the physical daily existence of married women and unmarried women. That's why I underlined it in your text. You can just see it very quick, very easily there. And so in verses 32 through 34, he gives this contrast. And one of the key words that he brings out is the word anxious in this contrast. He actually uses it, and the ESV translates it different ways. He uses it five times in these three verses. Remember, we were reading this morning about Martha and Mary. And the question that Jesus posed to her, why are you anxious? Why are you anxious? In this passage, Paul talks about anxiety and he plays with the word a bit. And he shows us, you know what? There's a good type of anxiety and a bad type of anxiety. The word anxiety could be translated to be concerned for or to care for. And in this text, as it reads, I mean, what he's saying is being anxious about or for the Lord is actually a good thing. To be caring for the Lord, to be concerned for the Lord is a good thing, while being overly preoccupied with one's spouse can also be counterproductive. And so he teaches us really two lessons here uh, regarding singles and their place and married believers and their place in the body. Uh, The first lesson is uh, singles can more easily maintain a singular focus while pleasing God. That's how I understand this text. Singles can more easily maintain a singular focus on the Lord while pleasing God. A single man or woman is in an excellent position to focus solely on pleasing the Lord. And then uh, the, the second lesson is married believers must care for a spouse while pleasing God. Paul says here that married men and women are divided. That's what the text says. They are both for the Lord, for the Lord, and for their spouse. They have concerns in both areas. And it's a tremendous blessing, of course, when your spouse is a believer and is following after Jesus as well. But still the text says, you know, married people, they've got two concerns, for the Lord, for their spouse. And he gives different purposes in verse 35 while he would bring this up to them. Uh, He says, I'm doing this for your benefit. I say this for your own benefit. And then I'm saying this to promote good order in the church. I want single and married people to know how to behave or function in the church and to understand the reasons why God has called them to the sort of relationship that they have. And then at the end of verse 35, he says, I'm also doing this to protect or to to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So why would Paul say something that could be so unsettling to an engaged young man and an engaged man? young woman in the city of Corinth. He says, one of the reasons I'm saying this is I'm saying this because I want to protect your 
devotion to the Lord. And he shows us, for all of us, what the most important relationship in the world that we have is. Overall, Paul has some very interesting reasons or considerations for us regarding singleness in this text. Some of his thoughts, I think, directly apply in the midst of crisis to the Corinthian situation. While other principles are timeless and eternal and things that single believers should consider even to this day. The main point I want to give to you regarding the way we view singles is we must be willing to reorient our thinking about single believers in the church. I mean, far from being glorified babysitters or grunt labor labor in the assembly, single believers actually might be some of the most valuable members of Colonial Baptist Church because they can strategically invest their energies and their lives to pursue after Jesus Christ alone. Is that the way you think about singles? Is that the way you think about your own life? Seems like Paul is making a lot of these points for us here. Reasons for remaining single. I've got eight minutes left. Let me work through verses 36 through 40. The second main point here is that Paul then makes two allowances about getting married, regarding getting married. And he deals specifically with that engaged couple at the beginning. And then he deals with widows or widowers at the end. So first Paul says that you can marry your fiance. You can marry your fiance. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And I really like how the ESV has translated this, but let me uh, just for a moment show you how another translation that some of you have in the pew would translate this and and point out something to you. The the New American Standard, I want to read the same passage from the New American Standard for you for a second. Verse 36 says, but if any man thinks that he's acting unbecoming toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. The New American Standard understands this passage to be dealing with a different scenario entirely. Those translators think that what's going on in the passage is Paul's giving counsel to a father about whether or not his daughter who's engaged should get married to someone else. I think that there are some pretty big problems with that in the text, and I prefer it much more like the ESV says here. And one of the questions I would have about, you know, why Paul would counsel a father this way. I mean, if there is like a crisis going on and you need to care for yeah, this girl, it would make much sense for him to say, you know what? She's all yours. <laughs> She's all yours. You care for her now. You take care of her. 
And so I, I definitely prefer it more like the ESV has here. And, and so this passage is not a passage about a father and daughter. It's, it's a passage about the young men and the young woman who are betrothed. They're engaged. And so Paul basically explains here, it's not a sin for the two of them to get married, especially if the man or the woman find marriage inevitable. Again, though, Paul's preference is for this young man to remain single and to, as he says in the text, keep her as his betrothed, which is a difficult concept. It means either stay engaged, but don't go any farther, keep as betrothed, or, or release her from the engagement. Never go any farther than betrothal, don't get married. Okay, and again, that could be hard, but what he's saying here is marriage is ordained by God, and it is a legitimate option for engaged believers, even if they find themselves in the midst of a crisis. If, if they cannot handle it, if they cannot refrain from uh, the, the desires to get married, Paul says that you can go and get married. It's not a problem at all. Okay, that leads us to verses 39 and 40 and a second allowance for getting married. This passage is to widows and widowers. Verse 39, Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. When we get to these verses, Paul again is talking to widows and widowers. The first part of verse 39, Paul demands the permanency of marriage. And he suggests right in that first phrase, the thing that will dissolve the marriage union is death. It's death. Death is the only thing that should break a marriage tie. And upon the death of one spouse, he says then, remarriage is permitted, but only to a believer. However, in Paul's judgment, he says that a widow or widower might be actually happier if they remain single as he is, so that they might be able to serve God. I know that we have many widows and widowers in the church, and I just want to take a moment here to let you know that your pastors pray for you regularly. We pray for you. I know that there are challenges that I just... I just will never fully be able to comprehend. But then I also want to encourage you, not just with our prayers, but I want to encourage you with this passage. This passage gives you guiding principles. It says you can get remarried, but only to believer. Or you might want to remain single in order to use more of your energies to serve the Lord. The very last sentence of verse 40 is interesting. I think I, I, I take it as sarcasm. Paul says that he too thinks that he has the Spirit of God. I think he might be critiquing some of the Corinthians who are claiming to be led by the Spirit, to be celibate in marriage. Or they were claiming that their unique, strange views about marriage were of the Spirit. And so Paul here is saying something like this. Uh, you know, I think the Spirit of God is enabling what I say too. So uh, that's how I would take the very end of the text. As, as we conclude here this, this morning, I want to implore our church to reorient our thoughts and our opinions about singles 
and to bring our thoughts or our opinions under the text of Scripture because the text is our authority. And so what I'd like to do in our closing uh, today, I'd like to directly address singles for just a moment with a few applications and then married people as well, okay? And so to the singles, I say this. Don't think that because you're single, you are inferior to married believers in the church of God. Actually, if the messenger got it right today, the scriptures actually give some advantages for remaining single and serving the Lord. So don't allow yourself to think that I'm in some way inferior to other people in the church simply because they're married. That's not what the scriptures would teach. I would also argue then as well, though, but, but don't think that you're more morally excellent or superior to, to people who are married either. I mean, I think what we need to understand in chapter 7, it seems to be clear throughout the chapter, is that God calls believers and equips them differently. God calls some people to married life. God calls others to singleness. And each is a gift of God. Okay, so don't think that you are inferior or superior because of your singleness. And then finally, I'd encourage single people, as your pastor, use your singleness to pursue Christ strongly. Strongly. Sadly, we live in a world, the United States of America today, where many single people remain single so they can do more of their own things. So that they can be free pursue their own desires, games, dreams, pursuits. And what I want to encourage you with today is instead of remaining single so that you have freedom for yourself, as you are single, pursue Christ strong. May Colonial Baptist Church be filled with single believers who have a radical approach to Jesus Christ, who are urgent in their desire to pursue him and to know him. And so I encourage all of you as single believers, pursue Christ strongly. Now to married believers. Some final words of application. I'd start, start with this. Instead of trying to hook up every single believer that you know of in the church, with a blind date. Perhaps you should pray for them to have wisdom about their marital status. Don't think to yourself, I think this is wrong thinking. She is so nice. She is so sweet. So I wonder why she's not married. This text might reveal why God has called her to be single. And so be willing to reorient your thinking according to what the scriptures say. I mean, this text has changed me and my approach to single people. And I think I've had the opportunity to preach or teach this text on multiple occasions. So when I interact with a single believer, I'm not thinking anymore, who can I hook them up with? Instead, I'm thinking, how can I show them how great Christ is? 
the single passion and pursuit of followers of Jesus Christ. So to married believers, I say as well, thank God for the strategic ministry and the valuable gifts of our singles in this church. Let's all reorient our, our thoughts about singles, making sure that our opinion is in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text of scripture. Lord, I pray that the things that I would say today would, would fall upon ears who would understand my desire, my heart to be of a blessing to singles and to married people. Lord, the reality is each one of us in the room find us in some sort of marital status at this point. And regardless of where we are, Father, may we not be discontent with it. May we not be looking over into the life of someone else and saying, oh, it'd be so nice to be single again, or oh, it'd be so nice to be married. Instead, may we remain where we are, be willing to do that, and know that you are always enough for believers in Jesus Christ. There are people in the room who are, who are distracting their spouse, making demands of them that would distract them from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would rebuke them. I pray that, Lord, for those of us who are in marriage relationships, uh, that we would look for ways that we could point our spouses to Christ and make life easier for our spouses so that they might be able to pursue you and love you. May it never be said uh, of us that our spouse's standing in the kingdom of God was in some way diminished because of their commitment to us. But Lord, would you give us the grace and the love to put them before ourselves and, and look forward to the day when we can present our spouses before the Lord and hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom. And Lord, for any single believer in the room here today who... This text has been a challenge or an encouragement. I pray, Lord, that you would empower them. I pray, Lord, that our church would be full of single people who love Jesus richly, fully, and who serve him constantly because they love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.